lot of Muslims really care about the Prophet Muhammad's words and actions. We spend a lot of time reading, verifying, memorizing these stories called hadith and trying to figure out what they mean for us now. Often, we do this together by seeking out this kind of knowledge from experts. How far back does this practice go? What were these gatherings of hadith learning and interpretation like, say, a thousand years ago? Keep listening and we'll take you there. I'm Shireen Hamza, and this is the Ottoman History Podcast. Muslims are agreed, for instance, that Muhammad said, Innama al-a'malu binyat, actions are by intentions. But what exactly does that mean? That's Professor Joel Blecker of George Washington University. He recently published a book about the history of teaching and interpreting hadith, or hadith commentary, across a millennium. I thought this is precisely the task of, of commentary. Not to discern whether or not a hadith is, is dated or not, but what in a hadith is dated and what aspects of a hadith are timeless. These gatherings were pretty epic, and while they have been a continuous part of Muslim intellectual life, they were also shaped by the local politics of a given place and time. Throughout our conversation, it became clear that these sessions were intensely meaningful. It's very clear that the commentary was, was very much engaged with the public, that the commentary itself kind of elicited this, uh, not just a vision, but literally the attendance of, of the Prophet. Stay with us. I'm here with Chris Grayton interviewing today Professor Joel Blecker, an assistant professor of history at George Washington University. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Some people listening might not be familiar with this idea of hadith commentary. Before we can get into this rich content, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what hadith actually is. Sure. Well, the title of the book is Said the Prophet of God, and that's Almost always how a, a hadith begins, Qala Rasulullah said the messenger of God, said the prophet of God. And it usually has that what follows is a short statement attributed to Muhammad, something that uh, he said, something that he did. It could be something very profound, uh, like one of the most famous hadith actions or by intentions, you know, this kind of uh, a very weighty hadith about... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or um, it could be something very simple. Uh, apparently, once uh, Muhammad, he, he loved to uh, brush his teeth with a wooden tooth stick called a sawak. He always had one in his ear. Apparently, uh, one time one of his companions came up to him and asked him uh, uh, a question that had been troubling him uh, about some, some issue of Islamic law. And Muhammad replied, because he had uh, he was brushing his teeth while he was uh, speaking. Um, it could be something very mundane uh, attributed to Muhammad, something he said or something he did. Sometimes it could be a very long story, and then just at the end, Muhammad is present. He doesn't even say anything. And um, I should say, for those who don't know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of hadith that are circulating and variants um, uh, concerning 
things Muhammad uh, said or did. It has really been the center, uh, not just of um, modern Western scholarship interested in the historical Muhammad, but it has really been the center of uh, enormous amount of um, Muslim scholarship. So when you say circulating, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about what that means, how hadith are circulated. There are usually two elements to a hadith. There's that what's called the mutton, the, the content, the text that describes something that Muhammad said or that he did. And then there's something called the chain of transmission or the isnad. And this is a way of guaranteeing the authority of the text. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's like a provenance, uh, like a historical provenance of the attribution of the saying or the practice. So um, in kind of very simple terms, you know, uh, a chain of transmission might look like Shireen heard from Chris, who heard from Joel, who heard from his grandfather, and so on, and so on, and so on, back to Muhammad himself. Um, hadith transmitters were not just interested in um, the, the content, the mutton, as I was saying, but they were also really interested in preserving these chains of transmission. And over the first three centuries of Islam is where you see uh, a lot of activity um, concerning uh, the interpretation of these chains of transmission, trying to appreciate their relative authenticity, whether they were weak or fair or sound or whether they were forged. Uh, Muslim scholars themselves were worried that forged hadith might creep into the tradition. Over uh, the first three centuries, there was this, this kind of period of culling, organizing, classifying hadith on all kinds of topics. Like I said, from everything from toothbrushing to matters of medicine to matters of law to theology, the end of time, governance, business. And so for that reason, hadith are such a rich resource for Muslim scholars of all kinds who, who are trying to draw on some, some kind of moral example and craft their own work and their own ideas. And I think some of our listeners will be thinking a very historical question right now. You mentioned that sort of a corpus that is studied by early scholars of Islam during the first centuries of Islam comes about, but this is a oral transmission. This is a very like alive kind of person-to-person transmission of a particular set of wide-ranging topics, as you said, related to the, the life and, and, and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. So your book focuses on the period after that classical period, and did you find that new hadith emerge in this late period that didn't exist in the early period, or do we indeed see that the, you know, the corpus becomes fixed? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to another really um, important book in the field, uh, and this is a book by Jonathan Brown called The Canonization, the Canonization of Bukhari and Muslim. And he tells exactly this story, the story of how it was that certain collections, um, uh, especially in the Sunni tradition, came to collect or came to be revered as canonical texts in which the hadith that were contained in them were considered the soundest of, of all of the traditions. You know, scholars can debate exactly when that happened, whether the, the 10th century, the 11th century, it, it kind of depends how exactly you measure it. But after that point, when we're talking about what, what some scholars are calling the post-classical period, 
after that, it's not so much about discovering new Hadith or um, authenticating new Hadith, although, of course, Hadith experts go back and try to uh, reevaluate and reexamine the authenticity of these, uh, um, the, the Hadith that have already been collected in those canonical works. But what really emerges um, is this, the question of interpretation. How, what it is that Hadith means. So Muslims are agreed, for instance, that Muhammad said, inma al-a'malu binyat, actions are by intentions. But what exactly does that mean? What is it, what, what kind of uh, moral claim does that make on uh, the community of believers? And I think this is, the, um, this is where we start to see not just pages and pages of written commentary, but hours and hours of oral lectures uh, towards students, commentary sessions. Um, as, at, at first, it's, it's actually described as tafsir, mm -hmm. uh, which is the same word used for Quran interpretation. And it's, it's these, these public, these live sessions where um, Hadith scholars are getting together and, and trying to make sense of what these Hadith mean. This raises a really interesting question of how do you study the history of an oral or performative practice um, when it's you know pre-modern, there's no archive, film archive for us to go to to observe. But you have pulled together a textual archive of performance or a textual archive of oral commentary practices. So I'd be curious to know what the earliest mention you've found of, of these kinds of oral uh, transmissions and gatherings of hadith are, and maybe you can read us one of them. Sure. Okay. So I should say that actually it seems as if the uh, oral lectures and the oral notes are as, are as early as the the collections themselves. That Bukhari apparently would give oral notes as he was reciting these hadith and transmitting them to his students. And I actually found a manuscript in Birmingham that contains a few lines uh, that discuss, that, that are attributed to Bukhari's kind of lecture notes on the side, which were later cut out because they weren't considered part of uh, the canonical text uh, because they were his, his kind of, his lecture notes, so to speak. Really the first instance of a, a kind of, uh, a, a social reading that's been preserved and recorded is in um, uh, Muslim Spain or late Umayyad Andalusia. I came across this, um, this very famous episode actually um, that has to do with a, a, a figure who I write about named uh, Abu walid al-Baji. Now uh, al-Baji was a Hadith scholar living in Andalusia in uh, the 11th century and he had traveled to Mecca to study hadith. This is one of the premier places where you could study hadith. And while he was there, he met another hadith scholar who had come to Mecca from the other side of the world, from Herat, Afghanistan. And they each met each other in Mecca in this shared um, kind of meeting place where hadith could be transmitted. And while Baji was there, he learned uh, uh, a great many hadith with specific phrasings that he hadn't heard when he was a student in Andalusia. And um, one of the hadith that he learned was a hadith attributed to, um, a, a, a hadith about the uh, 
uh, treaty at Hardebia. This is a, another famous, another very famous episode. So you can see, I mean, we're talking about stories within stories within stories within stories. Um, but he he brings back this hadith about the tr the treaty of Hardebia, which is significant because it contains a phrase in it that suggests that Muhammad once wrote. And it uses this phrase in Arabic, fakataba. so Muhammad wrote. And again, the reason that's, that that is significant is that in the 11th century, the kind of theological understanding of what really the sincerity of Muhammad's own prophethood was that um, he was, he could not read or write in the sense that he could not have read the Quran somewhere else. He could not have taken it or borrowed it from the Hebrew Bible or from the New Testament or from some other text. And of course, this hadith about the Treaty of Hardebiyah is itself about Muhammad's prophethood because um, the early believers and the, the Quraysh, the opponents that, he's been, that they've been fighting, are finally about to make a truce. But the one sticking point is whether or not to, to refer to Muhammad just as, as any other man of his time would have been referred to as the son of his father, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Of course, the, the early believers thought that Muhammad should be referred to as the messenger of God. And of course, his, the opponents didn't want Muhammad to sign his name or to kind of be on the, the treaty named in that way. Muhammad is watching the squabbling happening and he's getting more and more impatient and, and, and you imagine that he, he kind of finally got fed up with this, this kind of trivial uh, fighting and he, he took the document and wrote, this is what Muhammad, son of Abdullah, agreed upon and then listed the conditions of the treaty. Now, other variants of the Hadith say that Muhammad actually ordered someone else to do it, that he ordered Ali or that he, he may have just ordered someone else, an anonymous companion to sign it for him. Or another one says that he just kind of smudged, he kind of smudged out uh, the messenger of God on the, on the pact. But um, for Baji, the most authentic phrasing was the one that said he wrote, Fakataba. So he takes this Hadith back to Andalusia. He's going around, he's teaching students, he's kind of cultivating his own, um, his own student following. And he ends up in the seaside town of Dini. It's a little port town on the eastern coast of Spain, and maybe some listeners have, have actually been there. He's in this little port town, and he's, he's giving one of these, these sessions for the tafsir of hadith, the in interpretation of hadith. And he's going through these hadith, and he gets to this hadith on uh, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And a student asks him, and here I'll read from my book, my translation of this. Uh, chronicle. So it was said to Baji by a student, to whom does the pronoun he refer to in the phrase he wrote? Baji replied, to the prophet. So it was said to Baji, he wrote by hand? Baji said, yes. Do you not see it stated in the hadith? The prophet took the document, and while he did not know how to write well, he wrote, Fakataba. this is what Muhammad, son of Abdullah, agreed upon. And Apparently, this particular interpretation was um, so uh, controversial or, or caused such an upset that there were actually riots uh, in the streets, pro popular protests. There was a, a, a popular preacher who, um, who condemned Baji of unbelief, 
and uh, claimed that Baji's commentary on this hadith was tantamount to a denial of the authenticity of the Quran or the sincerity of Muhammad's prophethood. Uh, there were public denunciations and condemnations uh, and curses of Baji in Friday's sermons. And there was even a poet whose name was Abdullah ibn Hind who composed a few, uh, few couplets on this. And I'll read these couplets too, his poetry. He writes, keep me safe from the one who gains the world but pays with his afterlife. Keep me safe from the one who says, the messenger of God wrote. People are pretty upset here. <laughs> it's just amazing. I mean, for me, and again, you have to imagine that couplets were kind of like the Twitter of its day in the sense that it's 180 characters long. It's something that's memorable, right? People can remember it. It can, it can, it can circulate and spread very quickly. And to me, it shows the way in which commentary really was a public practice, a social practice, uh, that it was uh, very much engaged with the political context. When we think about commentaries, uh, the, the kind of uh, stereotypical image that comes to mind is of uh, a scholar locked away uh, in, uh, in, in his or her room engaging the text you know, one-on-one. Here, it's, it's very clear that the commentary was, was very much engaged with the public. When I say it's uh, political, it, it literally was, in the sense that the emir of Dania found out about Baji's commentary and actually wrote to various scholarly authorities in Sicily and the Near East to try to, um, to kind of quell the fiasco. And Baji himself ended up uh, writing a one-volume uh, one defense of his commentary on this hadith. So an entire volume sprang from uh, interpreting this, this, this one single hadith. And of course, Baji um, very deftly and brilliantly um, maneuvers in a way where he says, yes, I want to preserve and be faithful to the precise phrasing of this hadith, but at the same time, this is not a denial of Muhammad's prophethood. On, on the contrary, it actually affirms it, and it affirms the sincerity of the Quran. If you, if you want to really understand how he's able to do that, you will have to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this, this really is, a, I think, a good example that shows uh, the ways in which there's both political and social stakes of the commentary, in the sense that Baji's own survival <laughs> was at stake, but there were also intellectual stakes uh, because he really cared about preserving the phrasing of this hadith. Yeah, and I mean, you described it, the whole endeavor earlier as stories within stories, and I think our listeners just got a good glimpse of how this truly is um, a question of uh, studying many layers uh, of history, uh, of thought, uh, that are embedded in the context of a single interpretation of a hadith. Uh, and so your book is very fascinating because it has, in, right in the title, Across a Millennium. That's a lot of time in the history of Islam. And of course, it takes us to a lot of contexts to study hadith across an entire millennium. Uh, can you tell us very briefly about the other cases you look at in the book, sort of where you put the spotlight on the history of hadith and develop more sort of like the method that's involved in, in going through all these layers of, of history and studying hadith across such a wide temporal and geographical context. Part of the interest that I have in hearing you answer this question, and I think it really emerged from what we've talked about so far, is how the local plays 
a really important role in determining how a given move that a scholar makes is going to be received. Because as you said, um, this is how it was circulated in other regions of the Islamic world, and it's only kind of through their specific trajectory of bringing it to his local context in Al-Andalus, knowing this is not how people are talking about it here. And it's important to remember that, I think, as the terminology of the global gets kind of thrown around like, oh, this was a huge network, this was global. But the different nodes of the network are are different. So the book really tracks three moments, which is 10th and 11th century Muslim Spain, 14th and 15th century Egypt and Syria, and then it takes up the tradition again, um, largely in um, uh, 19th and 20th century India, but I'm really interested in what happens, you know, from the 16th century onward uh, in that that Indian Ocean context, uh, especially in Gujarat, uh, is 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 really interesting for me. The reason that I, I I chose those three sites really has to do with the primary sources themselves and where they took me. These are the three moments, the the locales, uh, where we not only see an intense production of commentaries on Hadith, and we see scholars citing themselves as authorities, in a sense, writing themselves into the tradition. So um, the the choice of my uh, of of the context in which I explore the commentary really have to do with um, the places where we see the flowerings of commentary itself. Now, if I were to have expanded the scope of my work. Uh, for instance, if, if I had gone deeper into the Shi'i commentary tradition, I would have surely taken up uh, the, the commentary tradition in the Safavid period, so uh, in, in, in Safavid, uh, Persia, 16th, 17th, and uh, 18th century um, Persia. And there you see, you know, I think 17 or 18 commentaries on Shi'i collections just in a single century. There could have also been a very nice um, section on commentaries, modern commentaries in Indonesia, uh, where we also see a, a, a flowering of uh, commentaries written in Indonesian, or these kinds of Arabic-Indonesian translations. These aren't the only locales that you could explore, but these are kind of the, the have been the three the locales and places that have been most influential in shaping uh, what. Uh, we now retrospectively look back and describe as the tradition of Hadith commentary. And that includes not only uh, multi the production of multi-volume texts on these collections, but also reports, chronicle reports, as I was describing, about reading sessions, live reading sessions, teaching sessions, reading sessions during Ramadan, reading sessions in the two months leading up to Ramadan. Yeah, you describe some really some really interesting context, especially starting in the Mamluk period, for when, when in the year or under what social conditions people would sponsor or host a reading of the Sahih or mm -hmm. a, com a live commentary. Maybe you can tell us a few of those examples. You know, if, if, if we were going to try to narrativize the, the life of the tradition, the Mamluk period would kind of be the moment of the tradition at its at its height, at its most um, rococo or its most baroque. I mean, it's the the kind of production of these texts are so detailed. They comment on 
every aspect of the text that they can imagine. And the act of commentary is one of these, it's, it's, it really is a devotional performance in the sense that it's never complete. So probably the most famous Hadith commentary in the Sunni tradition is a text called Fath al-Bari by Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, which was written over a period of 30 years in the 15th century. Fath al-Bari, I guess, translates roughly to I mean, literally, it kind of means victory of the creator. I kind of give a less literal translation of it, the kind of unlocking of wisdom, or because it really is a opening of all of the various meanings of, of uh, Bukhari's uh, Sahih, his, his, his famed Hadith collection. So this, this, this particular text, I mean, Ibn Hajar, as I said, worked on it for 30 years before there was a, a, a what we would call kind of a book party <laughs> or a, a feast or what's called a, a, a ceiling, uh, a khatam, uh, at the end of, of the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the commentary. But according to his students, he continued to tweak and to work on it and, and revise it for the 10 years that followed its, its official completion. So it really was this, um, this act of returning to the text. So you, you have these p- part of the fact of the, the kind of embedding of these texts in um, these seasonal readings, like these Ramadan readings, is that commentators are constantly returning to the text over and over and over again. And, and as they do, they come up with new insights. They find, they, they find new ideas. Sometimes their rivals come up with a, a, a suggestion that they then have to push back on years later. And so Ibn Hajar is commenting on this text in a courtly context intermittent periods of his composing this text he's actually serving at as the uh, a shafi justice or something like that uh, on the on the mamluk high court um, there it was understood that the the highest judge of the shafi school would comment on Bukhari during ramadan in the presence of the sultan the other high court judges and uh, the civilian elite the, the chronicle depictions of these events actually are quite detailed. I mean, almost, almost kind of give you an ethnographic texture. I mean, we even get a sense of whether the sultan looks bored, whether he moves his knee or not, whether he smiles at certain moments. Um, you get a sense of really the space, how, how proximate the commentator was to the sultan, whether the sultan withdrew to an alcove uh, in, the, in the middle of the commentary session. And you get a sense of the, the micro-politics, the local politics of um, the commentarial rivals who are, who are competing to compose the best commentary in Bukhari, really of their time, not just their generation, but something that will endure uh, for you know, maybe hundreds of years to come. So one way that we know so much about the politics of this local context are from these. I actually think, you know, you could say the disadvantages that they really reflect the biases of the chronicle writers and their own interests. They want to belittle their rivals. They want to elevate themselves, make themselves look good in these in these chronicles, and that that's absolutely true. But actually, I, I think that's that's 
that's an advantage in the sense that one thing that the Chronicles give us an insight into is how uh, the is is was the political and social stakes that the, the Chronicle writers uh, uh, wanted to uh, um, obtain uh, prestigious judgeships, um, teaching appointments, uh, wealthy stipends. Apparently, one uh, judge even got uh, uh, a stock of two hundred pounds of meat. <laughs> Uh, for one of his, uh, um, uh, for one of his in, in, in interpretive performances, sure. yeah, one a one person who lost a debate even got a consolation prize of uh, a, a, a tax benefit for all of the goods that he uh, he traded by sea. So there really were social uh, and political stakes, and the commentary in the, the in the chronicle sources in in their very bias biases tell us about those interests. And so when they're uh, narrating these, these kinds of rivalries, we, we really get a sense of that. And I'll just read one passage uh, between that, that describes, uh, from, from a chronicle, that describes one of these rivalries between Ibn Hajar and um, his, uh, his rival at the court, whose name was Shamsuddin al-Harawi. And how do we had uh, come to Cairo uh, uh, in the early part of the 15th century, in, in part escaping the the tumult uh, uh, in 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 Persia that had been uh, that had been brought about by um, the the kind of political instability of, of Tamerlane, and um, he kind of came seeking refuge in Cairo, and um, he claimed that he had memorized Bukhari, that he had memorized Muslim, all of its chains of transmission. He claimed that he had memorized 12,000 hadith. And Ibn Hajar, his rival, was very skeptical of this claim. So he was hoping in one of these live sessions in the presence of the sultan that, that, that he could embarrass him, and that he could show that, that how do we actually didn't know as much as, uh, know as much about hadith as he claimed to. So they were, um, they had gathered together in the morning um, for one of these recitation sessions. And um, uh, after kind of a, a, a morning of arguing and debating, they retired to the Sultan's garden, to the shade of the Sultan's garden. And, and they're enjoying fruits and sweets. And again, you really get a sense of the kind of food <laughs> that they would have been eating, the, the, the time of day, how hot it must have been. And one of the students who is there, and you rarely hear the voice of a student in the commentaries themselves, but you, 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 you get a glimpse of it in the, in the commentaries, a student recites this verse praising the shade in the garden. Uh, this verse from the Quran, this is... Um, uh, from Surah Ar-Ra'ad, verse 35, the food of paradise is everlasting, as is its shade. Ukulaha, da'imun, wa vidluha. And a scholar uh, who's there wonders how there could be everlasting shade in paradise. And he basically says, shade can't be without light, and heaven has no sun or moon. So how, how can we, you even speak of, uh, kind of, what, what is the nature of shade in paradise? So the scholars in attendance, including Ibn Hajar, are kind of starting to grapple with this puzzle. And someone cites this hadith from Bukhari on otherworldly shade, that there are seven kinds of people whom God will shade in his shade 
on the day when there is no shade but his shade. So this is the, the day of resurrection. Uh, at the end of time, who are the seven kinds of people, the kind of characters that, that, that God will protect? And, and the Hadith goes on to list them, right? Uh, a, um, okay, so there's a, actually a poem, a beautiful poem that, that lists them. So the, the seven kinds of people are a loving friend, a chaste person, a youth, a charitable, a charitable person, uh, someone who weeps uh, in prayer, um, someone who prays, uh, and uh, an imam and his justice. So these are the kind of the kind of seven moral exemplars who don't have anything to worry about on the day of resurrection. So um, so previous commentators had kind of understood the seven to be uh, um, not a, a kind of uh, had kind of implicitly understood it to be a kind of this, these were the seven the seven. And not that it was a strict limit that they policed uh, guardedly, but it was just understood these are the seven kinds of people who will be sheltered. And Ibn Hajar asks, while he's in the kind of the shade of the Sultan's garden, he asks, is there anyone among you who remembers, in addition to the seven, an eighth type of person? They replied, no. And here I'm reading from my, my translation. Ibn Hajar said, not even this one? who claims that he memorized 12,000 hadith, and the chronicles tell us that he gestured to Harui, who was silent. One of them said to him, have you memorized an eighth? Ibn Hajar said, yes, I know an eighth and a ninth and a tenth, but more amazing than this is that in the Sahih of Muslim, which Harui claims to have memorized in its entirety, there is an eighth for the aforementioned seven. It was said to him, acquaint us with that hadith so that we may derive benefit from it. Ibn Hajar replied, this place is a proving ground, not a place of seeking benefit. If you rearrange this to be a place of seeking benefit, then I would acquaint you with it. So after that, I, they, they do something to the space. The Chronicles don't say whether they rearranged it, whether students kind of, kind of rearrange themselves in a different seating position. Yeah, maybe they stopped snacking on fruits and sweets. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and then Ibn Hajar goes on and gives uh, his commentary on this hadith, and he versifies, um, he versifies in couplets not just the seven that were mentioned in the hadith, but another seven, and a third group of seven. And... Um, and when the session breaks for the evening prayer, the chronicles report that when the scholars wanted to take off, Ibn Hajar said to the sultan, Ya Khawand, your eminence, I accuse Harui of owing me a debt. What's that? The sultan replied, 12,000 hadith. And again, the chronicle reports that the sultan smiled and left. So he got the joke. To me, what's so amazing about this episode is that it not only tells us about the food, the space, the time, but the humor, the poetry, the way in which you would, in a commentary, move from a Quranic verse to a hadith, to an, a commentary on a hadith, to a kind of hadith commentary humor. And um, of course, in the Chronicle itself, it doesn't tell us what poetry Ibn Hajar recited, but in the commentary Ibn Hajar, that the formal commentary, the Fath al-Bayri, mm -hmm. he does actually include the two couplets. 
and 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 so here's a kind of a, a flavor of the poetry that that uh, he might have recited. Said the prophet, chosen by God, there are seven whom the generous God will shelter in His shade: a loving friend, a chaste man, a youth, a charitable person, a weeper, one who prays, and the Imam in his justice. Now add to the seven, shading a war hero and aiding him, granting a reprieve to the heart up and lightening his load, aiding a debtor, supporting a slave working to free himself, and the merchant who is honest in words and deeds. Part of my, my point in reading these, the commentary, the formal commentary and the chronicle side by side is to show both the social and political stakes, right, where Ibn Hajr is trying to jockey for status, honor, power. He's trying, to, he's, he's trying to show off. I mean, in a sense, even the poetry itself, right? Look how learned I am that I can versify hadith into couplets. And yet, there are also important intellectual stakes, normative stakes for Ibn Hajr, that, it's, that the seven who will be shaded is not a fixed limit, but he's actually opening up the meaning of, uh, of, of the Hadith, or he's, he's, in a sense, I mean, he's opening up the day of resurrection to God, the God's shade to more uh, moral examples than just these seven. His students go on, by the way, there's a whole genre of texts just dedicated to collecting Hadith on the seven who will who will be shaded on the day and when there's no shade but God's shade. You see both the kind of competitive aspect to it where each Hadith scholar tries to show, hey, I can get 60, I can get 80, I can get 96. That, that, that each one can actually find more and more attributes, more and more kinds of people. Uh, and yet there also is something, I think, um, a kind of a, a, a kind of what I call a kind of interpretive excellence or a kind of a, a moral good at stake for these, uh, these, these scholars that they, they're, they're trying to define who, who are the kind, of, who are the moral examples uh, in society that, that the Hadith are, um, are implying are praiseworthy or that, that, uh, um, you know, that, 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 that deserve God's, that are deserving of God's shade. And I think that that switch from the proving ground to a place of seeking benefit, that's, I think, the, uh, I think that's the key thing here. And the place of seeking benefit, the sense I get from reading this book is that it is a teacher-student environment where students are seeking to cultivate not only, as you say, the, their scholarly selves and their ability to know hadith and to know them well, but to live them. That's right. And that, and I think that's the for me in writing this book, I didn't want to give short shrift to either of those two because even in that student teacher environment, it's also embedded in the politics. And of course, as scholars and academics, we know this too. As we write books, we are also thinking about the job market, or as we write our dissertations, we're also thinking about how am I positioning myself, so to speak. And um, so, in that sense. You know, there has been a trend, I think, um, in the historiography to look at scholarly culture as the competition over social capital. And uh, I don't mean to in reduce or diminish that kind of work because that work is exactly what informs this book. But what I'm arguing here is that's, that's an important part of the puzzle, but it's not the only part of the puzzle. That scholars, yes, they did compete for social capital, honor, status, rank, and so on, but they also 
uh, cared about these uh, normative stakes. And uh, they cared about stakes that, in a sense, were defined uh, and, and, and could be recognized and appreciated by other participants in the tradition. And uh, that, that couldn't be, um, that, that couldn't necessarily be uh, reduced to a prestigious judgeship or, um, um, uh, or a, a stipend of 200 pounds of meat. So maybe in our remaining time, we can talk, we can move to another context and see how all these questions surrounding Hadith are operating in the Indian Ocean world. Uh, in your book, you study a very important period in the history of that uh, broad region. You start out in the early modern period. Uh, you have an Indian Ocean um, connected by trade, but also scholarly networks, um, Islamic scholarly networks crossing all sides of the Indian Ocean, East Africa, Arabian Peninsula, and South Asia. By the end of that period, most of that political space is dominated by a European uh, political power. So in some sense, in terms of the history of the Islamic world, it's really a, um, a big difference to, to be ruled by non-Muslim rulers, we can say, right? So it's a political context, uh, somewhat removed from, say, the, the, the golden age of Andalusia or the uh, Mamluks in, in Cairo. So help us make the connection between Mamluk period in Egypt and Syria and this Indian Ocean world you study. So I, I think it's clear to anybody who, who studies Islamic scholarly culture in modern India that these, uh, that these famous influential sheikhs in the Diobandi movement, for instance, who are printing Hadith commentaries, um, really emulate and model themselves on these Mamluk authorities. Uh, they even compare themselves to these Mamluk authorities in, the bi in, in their biographies. Uh, they say they had a photographic memory <laughs> like Ibn Hajar, and of course using the kind of technology of the photograph to describe how they emulate this, this, uh, this, this revered uh, Mamluk past. It would kind of, on first glance, you would think, oh, this is a projection onto the past, that there isn't, a, 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 there isn't like a, a living connection between these scholars and, and, and this Mamluk past. But one of the things that I found in my research was actually there was a, a very vibrant living connection. And in a way, the Hadith scholars and the Hadith commentators in India, when they claim that they surpassed the, the, the or they kind of took up the mantle of the uh, Hadith scholarly tradition in India from, uh, from, from those scholars past in, 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 in 14th and 15th century Egypt, I think they're, they kind of can make this claim with, with some justification. In fact, Ibn Hajar's students traveled uh, along pilgrim routes and um, spice trade routes to uh, find patronage in Gujarat. Uh, some of them, they would stop in Mecca 
and then go on their way to Zabid in uh, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Uh, and then from there, they would uh, be attracted uh, by an appointment. They would be appointed as court treasurer and Hadith um, scholar uh, in, in Gujarat. And this is in the kind of northwest of India, in the kind of the Gulf of Cambay, the coast, the western coast of India. And this is also a very famous port city. So, and we can actually track the movement of these texts across these spaces and the chronicles as they're going through and recording disasters and uh, plague and earthquakes and, and, uh, and so forth. They list the coming of Fath al-Bari to Gujarat and to Yemen. And they celebrate it, you know, as kind of here was the year in which Fath al-Bari actually entered, uh, um, actually entered uh, Yemen and when it actually entered uh, Gujarat, when it was acquired. And uh, these texts were seen as collector's items, but the scholars themselves who were bringing those texts were also kind of collectible in the sense that 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 the the Gujarati sultans wanted to collect these scholars, have them close to them and working for them and teaching and instructing Hadith and commenting on Hadith. And so we actually see um, commentaries first from these uh, re relocated Egyptian scholars who have, were relocated to India, and then we start to see commentaries written by scholars indigenous to India who were students of these Egyptian scholars. Those students kind of, in their scholarly careers, those, the kind of patterns would be that they would go from India when the monsoon uh, winds allowed them, they would go to Yemen and then up to Mecca, study Hadith, and then return to India and write commentaries, Arabic commentaries. And they would name them almost like the titles themselves sound like Fath al-Bari. They would name them Fayd al-Bari. So for instance, I mean, just to give you a picture of how the kind of, how rich the traffic was uh, in Yemen and, and kind of give you a picture of um, the Indian Ocean context in which these, these commentaries were emerging, uh, there was a, a scholar in the 16th century in Zabit, which was understood to be a, a, a very important scholarly center in Yemen, not too far away from Aden, which was a, a major um, trading emporium. And um, he had students from not just from Egypt and India, but also from Ethiopia. And he had, he had local students, of course, from Zabid and also from, from Mecca, who would come and study with him. And he, uh, Ibn Ziyad al-Maqsari, set up a, a recitation of Bukhari in the two months leading up to Ramadan, ending in, at the end of Ramadan, in just the way that these Mamluk authorities uh, had. And not only did he record the number of students who, who registered in attendance, but also the number of books that were present and the number of copies of Bukhari that were present. So there's a, a sense in which the kind of presence of books is also very important uh, or, or kind of a part of the, the scene. And he records a copy of Fath al-Bari. Uh, which had been brought had been brought there uh, by one of Ibn Hajar's students. We really get a, a picture, not just that. Um, I mean, the, the, that Ibn Hajar wasn't there. Of course, Ibn Hajar had died a century ago, but he was there in the sense of kind of in his presence in the book. One of the the anecdotes that really gets at the the kind of 
devotional aspect of these commentaries is the fact that by the end of Ramadan, uh, Al-Maqsari describes kind of the, the feeling in the commentary session and the, the kind of um, the depth of study was so intense that he, he claimed that he actually saw Muhammad with the naked eye. I mean, in the sense, I, I think the Arabic that he uses, he says he kind of sees it with the whites of his eye. And um, this, this idea that uh, Muhammad himself was present in, in the commentary, that, 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 that the commentary itself kind of elicited this, uh, not just a vision, but literally the attendance of, of the prophet. What's interesting about this particular scene is we don't actually get a sense of the political stakes in, in this particular chronicle. We don't get a sense that there was a sultan listening in or that there were scholars jockeying for power. And I think that um, that's actually a, a story that, in a sense, as the Hadith commentary tradition unfolds in India, especially in the colonial context, scholars are further and further removed from power. I mean, they're, they're literally divorced or insulated from a power. I mean, the British aren't looking in or attending these commentary sessions in the way that the Mamluk Sultan was. And in a way, it's freeing. You might expect that you would see less politics in the commentaries themselves. And yet, actually, it's, it's actually quite discursively liberating, <laughs> where you see uh, in, the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, all of a sudden, scholars are explicitly talking about the colonial context. They're talking about the British. They talk about British officials in the lines of the commentary and how certain hadith relate to that colonial context and um, even British fashion. So a hadith on, um, this is actually a, a, a famous hadith that's been written about before, um, and uh, Muhammad Qasim Zaman has a nice article about this, uh, about uh, a hadith that says that if you that Satan can appear to you in any guise in your dreams, but if Muhammad appears to you, that's, you've, you've actually seen him. Mm-hmm. One of uh, Anwar Shal Kashmiri, this famous um, late 19th, early 20th century Hadith commentators in India, uh, one of his students comes to him and asks, tells him he saw a dream where Muhammad was wearing a British cap. Mm-hmm. And did he really see Muhammad wearing a British cap? And of course, Kashmiri goes through the commentary and, and tries to explain, you know, the kind of appearance, the kind of illusion and, and reality distinction. But by the end of it, he uh, kind of through his intellectual maneuvering, he says, no, you didn't actually see Muhammad wearing a British cap. And even though the text of the Hadith itself says, if you see Muhammad, uh, you've, you've really seen him. So again, they are wrestling with, uh, with new issues, new languages. We see commentaries in Urdu commentaries in uh, English even, and all of the kind of uh, modern contexts are brought to bear on the commentary tradition. And I think it should be worth stating that the modern period is not unique in, in the fact that the local contexts were influencing the way that commentators manage the meanings of Hadith. And I think, you know, that that's sometimes, you know, what Sometimes the idea that these pre-modern intellectual traditions were somehow insulated from their political and social conscience, they were all so high-minded that they, 
merely dealt with the kind of high-minded norms and ideals and the text itself. And they were somehow uninfluenced by their local political and social context. And it was only in the modern period where the texts some start to unravel or are vulnerable to the, um, all of these new technologies, new languages, new audiences, and so forth. And, and maybe it's an issue of degree that it's, yes, it's always happening, but there's a kind of new degree in the modern period. But uh, I think the tradition itself is kind of a, a, a prism that reflects its social and political context. And yet there is this enduring conversation <laughs> that you see continuing over time uh, on the meaning of certain hadith and the, the normative claims that it makes on uh, the community of believers that, that, that read and care about them. I want to sneak in one more question here, and listeners who are interested in these topics at length should totally check out the book. But I just wanted to ask um, if there's some wisdom, some faida, some benefit that you drew from the material that you've spent all these years with. I think it's, it's for me, and I write about this in the epilogue, I think it's, for me, it's this insight about timeliness and what in a textual tradition is dated. I was giving a, a book talk about this uh, um, last week, and uh, a community member asked me a question whether or not uh, there were hadith that were dated. And it was, it was a, a very simple question, but I think a, a really revealing one, because I thought this this is precisely the this is precisely the task of of commentary, not to discern whether or not a hadith is is dated or not, but what in a hadith is dated and what aspects of a hadith are timeless. And in a sense, maybe this is the the kind of benefit that I take away as as someone who reads and interprets text for a living as I do, is that I, I do think about my own situatedness and the way in which um, my, own reading of, my own reading of texts, um, I mean, I, I think this is an insight for text reading more broadly. What we do when we read and when we interpret is we're, we're constantly thinking about what is useful uh, in this text, what is useful for this, this present moment or for future audiences or future readers can be can be left as, left left aside or or as uh, not left aside but as a kind of artifact of its own circumstances. Yeah. It, when you think about a tradition over a really long period of time, it's all it's almost like you're you're thinking about traditions almost in geologic time. What can seem dated about a text, or what can seem pertinent about a text in one moment over long periods of time uh, can radically change and can be ruptured and, and, and flipped in a sense even. And the forces of those changes are, are not, uh, are, are sometimes as powerful as geological forces, but you know, they're not necessarily natural. They, they're political, they're social, they can be intellectual too. Maybe if I could sum up the, the kind of benefit that I, I took from this study is is the way that in which I, I, th I think about text, the way I think about tradition, 
the way in which I think about my own reading practices, the way in which they speak to their own time, and the way in which they try to achieve a sense of timelessness. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing not only some choice excerpts from your text, but also sharing your experience of writing this text. We've been on the meta level for a lot of this uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. It was a great honor and I'm so glad that you invited me. So listeners who are interested in learning more about anything we've discussed can visit our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Joel has kindly provided us with a short bibliography. Thanks so much. And until next time.